This podcast is made possible by Lilly Oncology. Welcome to the BreastCancer.org podcast, the award-winning podcast that brings you the latest information on breast cancer research, treatments, side effects, and survivorship issues through expert interviews, as well as personal stories from people affected by breast cancer. Here's your host, BreastCancer.org Senior Editor, Jamie DiPolo. Hello, as always, thanks for listening. Maura Harrigan is an Oncology Research Registered Dietitian and Project Manager at the Yale School of Medicine. She also serves as a Registered Dietitian Nutritionist in the Survivorship Clinic at the Yale Cancer Center. At the 2020 San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium, results were presented from a study on dietary supplement use by breast cancer survivors and how these supplements may interact with tamoxifen and the aromatase inhibitors. Maura is the lead researcher on the study and joins us today to talk about the results. Maura, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So to start, just in case everyone is not familiar, could you give us an overview of the study? I believe that looking at supplement use is kind of one part of a larger study. Is that right? Yes. So the um, collection of dietary supplement use is kind of an ancillary look of the study. And the study is called the Lean Study, Lifestyle, Exercise, and Nutrition, which is a uh, healthy lifestyle intervention for women who've completed treatment for breast cancer. Um, And it was actually intended to be a weight loss intervention because, as we found, women who undergo treatment for breast cancer often gain weight during treatment, and then that weight gain puts them at increased risk for recurrence. So that's kind of the premise of the study, and it was designed and based upon the diabetes prevention program um, and adapted to the breast cancer population. So it's this very effective healthy eating and exercise intervention for weight management. And as part of our data collection, you know, in addition to the FFQ, we call it food frequency questionnaire, which is a validated food collection uh, document. We uh, also designed a uh, medication and supplement questionnaire with the study. So we were asking women to report their supplement usage um, at baseline. And it just was eye-opening. <laughs> To be uh-huh. honest. <laughs> okay, so let's let's talk about these results. I think, if I'm remembering correctly, it was about 80% of the women were using a supplement, at least one. Yes, yes, it's uh, phenomenal usage. Now, just to put it in context, um, the average American adult uses 50% of American adults use supplements. This is a robust market, and cancer survivors are even greater users of it. So it averages about 70% of cancer survivors use dietary supplements. And in our finding, this snapshot, as I like to call it, um, 80% of our women uh, enrolled in the study were using dietary supplements. And let me just define dietary supplements at at the get-go. So it includes um, vitamins, minerals, and herbal preparations. You know, this is a legal definition that was put into law in, uh, by the Deshaies Act, 1994. Just throwing that out there. That, and and I, I highlight that uh, legal decision because it set in motion the robust market there is for dietary supplements that is non-regulated 
Right. And it's that, a, a I was wild, ask wild you to west. Say that. Yeah, yes. because none of these supplements have to be approved by the FDA. There's a, a kind of a voluntary thing I know with a particular seal who the name of which escapes me right at the moment. But, you know, it's not just looking at something you you're not even really assured that what it says on the label is what's in the the package or what's in the, the pill or the tincture. That's exactly right. So that uh, Deshea Act classified supplements, not only defined them, but classified them as a food, not a medication. Yet, uh, so that they're, they're not regulated by the FDA. The only time the FDA steps in is if there's a reported uh, event, you know, medical event from usage, and then the FDA will step in and, and investigate it. But it has to be reported by the consumer. So there's no safety um, requirements by the manufacturer before they put these on the market. So it's just fraught. And as you said, there's um, issues with uh, the content and the labeling and the actual content of the supplement. There are lots of issues with that. So, and people don't realize this. So these are actually, supplements are, are uh, really like pharmacologic agents but people don't view them that way. And that's why, you know, this looking, capturing this data in this study and then kind of making the link, cause you know, they're not benign, you know, and they, I'm not to say all supplements are not needed. They are, but they need to be sifted through, you know, uh, and that's why people need to report this, their usage to their doctor. And, and it's really helpful to have a dietitian. And also we have um, an oncology pharmacist who works with us and we sift through these supplements and we cross check them against the treatments people are receiving, particularly the hormonal treatments as we did here with the aromatase inhibitors and tamoxifen and their interactions that occur that people are not aware of. So that's why we're trying to bring this to everyone's attention that this matters and it often flies under the radar. Mm -hmm. of clinicians. And I, I say the issue is kind of like our own version of don't ask, don't tell, you know, <laughs> patients don't tell and right. uh, healthcare teams don't ask. So we need to correct that, but there are challenges with it. So as we found, we, you know, we asked, we, we drew up a list of um, herbal preparations and vitamins and minerals. And it, there was a pretty uh, extensive list, about 50 different preparations, just to help jog people's memory, because this is self-report, mm -hmm. which has its own problems. And what um, I found was that two thirds of the herbal preparations that we listed, no one was using. And then they wrote in another like 25 formulations that they were using. So it's a very fluid uh, usage and each snapshot comes out differently. So that's another thing for people to um, realize. It's a rapidly changing market and fluid usage um, and you know, subject to problems of self-report. So you really have to kind of be, um, you have to kind of dig and, uh, and kind of get at it. Now, I just like a sidebar, just a COVID sidebar here, a COVID update. Um, in my work now, I do telehealth. I love it because in terms of supplements, I have the people go to their medicine cabinets. I have oh, them open sorry. up their, their kitchen cabinets. They take out the bottles. They're showing me the labels. This is like a home visit. And okay. this is, um, to me, um, I've had much better uh, 
reporting uh, and um, accuracy and reporting of supplement use, and also my interaction with them is much more effective. So that's something I'm going to keep going forward. Sure. That's very interesting because, yeah, you can then actually see, like, if somebody says, well, I'm taking, uh, I'll just use an example, like zinc, but maybe the zinc tablet has other things in it and you wouldn't know until they actually showed you that bottle. So you bring up really a very good point there is that people don't realize that um, there may, may be multiple formulations in a bottle and they may having maybe they have three bottles lined up. And in those three bottles, vitamin A may be present in all three. So we call that stacking, the stacking of nutrients. And it's very easy to then take in too much because there sure. is such a thing as too much. So it can exceed the tolerated upper limit, which are all defined for these micronutrients. So uh, that's, that's something that I check is mm -hmm. um, stacking of nutrients. Are you overdosing, particularly with your what we call the fat-soluble vitamins, which are A, D, E, and K, which the body stores in the liver, does not excrete mm -hmm. what it doesn't need. So that's where you can get into you know, your liver toxicities uh, and interactions with medications, as opposed to the water-soluble vitamins, which you're, you excrete out what you don't need in your urine. And I often say to people, uh, you have very nutrient-dense, expensive urine right now. <laughs> I like that. That's good. That usually gets them to rethink what they're doing. <laughs> <laughs> sure. So I'm curious with the with the study. I mean, clearly 80% is a very high number of people taking supplements. So I I kind of have two things going on in my mind right now. One, um, I think maybe because some of these sup, especially supplements as opposed to vitamins, may be marketed as quote unquote natural or this is found in nature. Um, so they don't think of it as it could possibly harm them. And two, did the study look at all why the women were taking supplements? My suspicion would be that, you know, they're trying to be as healthy as they can be. They're recovering from cancer. They may still be taking treatment like hormonal therapy. And they're thinking like, oh, I'm going to be the healthiest I can be. So I'm going to do this. Yes, uh, we did ask them to report their reasons why taking, and they were targeted some, you know, for to support bone health. So okay. they would be, let's say, calcium and vitamin D. But the majority were reporting that they were taking it to prevent cancer recurrence. Mm -hmm. And you know, what's very clear from the um, American Cancer Society, World Cancer Research Fund, American Institute for Cancer Research all these uh, standards of practice are do not use dietary supplements to protect against cancer. It's very clear. That message is not getting to people. So they're taking it with good intentions. And I, and I want to point that out because when you're counseling people about it, you have to be mindful of their good intention because you have to honor that. You have to acknowledge that they're really trying Mm -hmm. And they're doing this on their own, and they're just working with information that's out there. And a lot of that information out there is not evidence-based and a lot of misinformation. So they're doing the best they can. So you have to honor that. You can't just dismiss what they're doing. Um, so you have to approach it by acknowledging that you know they're really trying, and they're mm -hmm. interested, and they're and making an effort. And um, But I always say my job is to make sure that you're not taking any, anything that's interfering with something else that's being prescribed for you. 
And when you put it in that context, they're open to hearing what you have to say. Now, many people have very strong beliefs in taking supplements. And that belief is important, that belief matters, and that Mm -hmm. belief counts. So you can't just dismiss it. So Mm -hmm. there there is a little art to this counseling. I I always describe it as a negotiation. When you go in to kind of sift through and say, okay, this is not harmful. Um, This is what you need. This one, though, is interfering, could interfere with your other treatments. And then they're more apt to hear that and more apt to make a a good change. Okay. Kind of following up on that, I believe uh, vitamin D was the most common supplement taken in as in this snapshot in your study. And so that, you know, that as you talk about the, the different information out there. So, you know, there are studies that show maybe vitamin D can reduce cancer risk. So of course, if I've been diagnosed well, why wouldn't it reduce the risk of recurrence? I can see that extrapolation happening in a lot of people's minds. Um, You know, other studies have shown that if you have low vitamin D levels, certain uh, treatments may not be as effective. So there's all this sort of conflicting stuff out there. And as you say, it can be very hard to wade through you know, because you're seeing this news story and that news story and they conflict, but well, ultimately this one said it was good, so I'm going to try it because what harm can it do because it's natural? So, you know, how, I guess, how do you counsel people on all that? That it's it's got to be so hard. It is challenging. <laughs> it is challenging. And, um, and, you know, the, and the research on vitamin D is not conclusive yet, you know, and, so, um, you know, then the media reports on, you know, studies and they don't always put it in the context of this is an ongoing sorting out of information. And so that makes it hard for a lay person to kind of realize, well, this is just one aspect of the research and there's, it's still, there's still more questions. But what I like to say to people is, and what's, it's interesting, when they come to me, they'll often, their first nutrition question to me is, what supplements should I be taking? Not what foods should I be eating? And I find, you know, that's where people's heads are at um, in terms of nutrition. And so what I try to explain to them is that, um, you know, the, the micronutrients that are in supplement form are, do not act the same way as micronutrients in whole foods. Your body does not handle them in the same manner. In fact, the nutrients that are in whole foods are much more available to your body. Um, and you know the body handles supplements like it's a medication. So there's really no replacing the power of Mother Nature who packages uh, all her nutrients in a matrix of uh, foodstuffs, you know, with fiber, with uh, phytonutrients, with probiotics, um, and anti-inflammatory agents, and they're all packaged together. So when I start talking about food that way, they start shifting their, like, oh, food does have all these things that I'm looking for. And the bottom line is most people do not eat well. They're not eating a a rich diet of nutrient-dense fruits and vegetables. So kind of, you know, steering them that way that you can do a lot even better with what we call a predominantly plant-based diet and kind of steer that direction. And they have, a most people have a lot of room for improvement there. So, um, and they recognize that, but they, they, they often don't think that's enough. 
And then it's my job to show them that, oh, yes, it is. In fact, it's even better. Now, there's not to say that there are places for supplements, but honestly, most of it is to, to correct deficiencies. That's how they came into being. Supplements you know, were identified through deficiencies. So de- correcting a deficiency is really important, but that doesn't mean more is better. <laughs> Right. Well, that's the uh, the good old U.S. slogan, right? If, if one is good, <laughs> ten is better, right? <laughs> right. Exactly. But well, and it's interesting too because I've, and this is just my personal opinion. Um, sometimes I feel that people find it easier or would rather like let me just take a pill. I don't want to switch my diet. I don't want to you know, do some exercise, just let me take a pill and be done with it. And so like, how do you, how do you overcome that mindset? Um, Again, it's a challenge. (laughs) Uh, And, you know, a lot of our, the, the medical system that they're a part of treats things with a pill. So they're just assuming, you know, that's the power of, you know, prescribed medication. So they're in that mindset. I come at it a different way with people. I, um, particularly with cancer survivors, people in active treatment, I will say, you know, you're surrounded by a team of experts. You know, you have your medical oncologist who's doing your chemotherapy. You have your surgeon. You have your radiologist, um, and they're all experts in their field. And you're you're getting the state of the art of all of this for your care. But your contribution to your care is how you f- nourish your body and how you move your body. And by nourishing your body and exercising your body, you make your body more resilient and more receptive to these treatments. So this is your contribution to your care. You're part of the team. And only you can do this. And that resonates with a lot of people in a positive way because they'll see that as, oh, wow, I have some control here. Because mm-hmm. all these other treatments, I just show up when I, where I'm told I, when and where, and right. I do it. Mm-hmm. But... The control over their own body, their own nourishment, and their own exercise, uh, a lot of people find that empowering. And the bonus is they feel better when they do these things, and they tolerate their treatments better. So it's very empowering to people. And for many people, it's the cancer diagnosis is the window, teachable moment. for them to address these issues that they maybe not had been successfully addressing before their diagnosis. And in my work and in the lean study and in survivorship clinic, I have found that people, and I, this, this is a beautiful thing to witness is that people will say, um, I, they've adopted healthy eating. They adopted regular exercise since their diagnosis, they feel better. And then they'll say, I know this sounds crazy. I've never been healthier. I've never felt better. And this, and I've been through a cancer diagnosis and it's through the power of um, good nutrition and exercise. And it's, and it changes their view of their body, their health. It gives them a positive outlook going forward. And that's a beautiful thing to witness and to uh, give people the tools to do that. And it gives them, uh, again, that, that empowerment, that sense of sense of control, hope, and just um, feeling energized. Sure. No, <laughs> that makes, energized and fueled yeah. and nourished. Yeah. That makes sense. So I, I kind of want to go back to vitamin D and maybe some of the other supplements that you found. So in this particular snapshot of the study, um, 
vitamin D now can interact with tamoxifen, letrozole, and eczemestane, if I'm remembering correctly. So, you know, yeah. what are those interactions? And I guess sort of as, as a side question to that, I have a couple friends who are physicians. They're not oncologists, but they are physicians. And they have told me, well, you know how much education we get about nutrition in med school? We get three hours. So my my other question is, if they do go to their physician or their oncologist, is that even the correct person to talk? I mean, obviously, they need to tell their doctor about what they're taking, everything that they're taking. But is the doctor going to immediately be able to sort of help them sort out? Or should the doctor be refer them to a dietitian? Well, of course, being a dietitian, <laughs> of course, I'm a little biased here. But I would say, please, please refer to a dietitian. Uh, you know, we, um, we have a deep bench, you know, of knowledge about this. Um, this is our training. And just so also there, there's board certification uh, in oncology nutrition for dietitians. So there's advanced practice uh, certification. It's called uh, the credential is CSO, Certified Specialist in Oncology. So there's very deep training um, and also the counseling skills that are needed. So yes, my goal is to integrate nutri this level of nutrition counseling into all oncology care. Um, right now, the um, it seems to be the standard of practice is it's all by consult. You know, you have to request a nutrition consult, and then a very qualified dietitian steps in. But um, I want it where it's just part of the standard of care, that okay. this, this is something that everyone gets, uh, an evaluation of how you're eating, what your supplement use is, and then even how to manage your side effects uh, so uh, that can impact your ability to eat and uh, nourish your body. We call those nutrition impact symptoms that okay. are very uh, well un understood by dietitians. So we have workarounds for everything. So we can really be an ally through treatment, from diagnosis on, through treatment and into survivorship to really uh, help people manage the treatments and be more resilient. So um, that is important. And, and I want to say, I just want to identify when we, when we look up, when we look for these interactions, we're using a very um, well-developed database called the um, Natural Medicines Database, which um, does an excellent job of identifying potential interactions. And they're um, graded on different three levels of um, minor to moderate to major. Okay. So that's how, and then, you know, working with an, with an oncology pharmacist is really helpful too. So that's what we do. We go in and we go into the natural medicines database and we identify any potential interaction and what level it is. And if it's a minor interaction, we, it's, we don't, we're not really that concerned with it. The moderate ones we're cautious with the major ones. We real, that's where we step in and say, yeah, you got us, you can't take this with that. Okay. Um, so that's that's where we get our information from, and the now the interactions um, work with different metabolic pathways, and you can explain this to varying degrees with people depending on their interest. But um, I like to say it's like merging traffic. You know, you have um, you you 
cars going into the same lane on the highway. Well, that can that was how I explain if you're taking a dietary supplement that interferes with a interacts with a medication, it's like merging traffic in your body. And that that merge can either it can, it can work different ways. It could either potentiate the dose of that medication or it can diminish that dose. Mm-hmm. So it'll it's so it's variable. Um, and the um, and the metabolic pathways are different versions of the CYP pathways, you know, CYP pathways. And um, but there's also um, a, a pharmacodynamic interaction where a, a, a supplement can have what we call estrogenic activity. So in hormonally sensitive breast cancers, you know, that's an issue too. So there are many levels of these interactions. It's very complex and that's why it's so important to tease through these supplements and sift through cross check um, because you want to know that when you're taking a prescribed medication, you are getting the intended dose. Sure. You don't want something to interfere with that dose. And I think everyone would agree with that. So that's a, that's a, when you explain it that way, they're like, Oh, okay. And sometimes, uh, especially, Another way to kind of do a workaround with people is you can ask them to suspend it during active treatment oh, um, I see. and then revisit it once they're done. So you're asking them just to take a hiatus, you know, particularly if they have a very strong belief in it. So that's another way to kind of manage this, these interactions and say, how about just for now, you know, okay. while you're receiving this treatment, let's suspend it. And then when you finish, let's talk again. And, sure. you know, and we'll revisit it. So what do we know exactly what the interaction is between vitamin D and these particular hormonal therapies? Well, first, I want to just couch this by saying these are, you know, potential interactions. Okay. You know, um, and, you know, again, you always have to look more holistically at what's going on. But um, we looked at the, on the natural medicines database. They were identified as moderate interactions, so cautious Mm-hmm. Um, and it was through the um, CYP3A4 pathway. Um, the effect on the uh, dosages, I, I cannot answer at this point, um, okay. but they can be either increased or decreased. Um, okay. And that, uh, again, I would defer to the pharmacist for that question. Okay, that's fine. But in either case, I guess people should know that it could affect how much of the medicine is in their bodies. And as you said earlier, people want to make sure they're getting the correct dose, not too much, not too little. So they need to be aware of this potential interaction. Absolutely. And particularly with these hormonal therapies, because people are going to be, women are on them for 10 years. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to be on a medication for that long, you want to make sure it's working right. and it's at the correct dose. So right. you don't want to interfere with that. So that's where, um, these evaluations are important. Okay. Now, I I do, I guess I'm curious, how common is it for cancer centers to have somebody like you uh, that, that people have access to? And I guess what would be your advice to women who are either in treatment, uh, maybe they're, you know, on a hormonal therapy, maybe they've just finished treatment, and should everyone request 
a, a consult with a nutritionist to, I mean, I know you said you would love it to be just part of the standard of care, but it doesn't sound like we're quite there yet. So yeah. in your mind, would your advice be to somebody, hey, yeah, request that consult. Let's talk about your diet. Let's talk about your exercise levels. Let's talk about all the supplements you're taking, even if you don't think of them right away. Um, and, you know, and get that conversation going, because as you said, it doesn't sound like a doctor is going to automatically refer somebody to a dietitian. I always encourage people to be their own advocate, mm -hmm. you know, in their care and being proactive. So this is part of that. Um, you seek this, you seek these services out. There are, they are available, um, but you have to find them. I see. And um, so in, in my ideal world, that will change, <laughs> that these services would be brought to you. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, but that's not the case right now. Though, you know, I am fortunate to work at Smilo, uh, you know, Yale Cancer Center, Smilo Hospital, and we have um, one of the first survivorship clinics in the country. It's been in place for about 14 years now. Um, and we're um, out of that clinic, we've also started a supplement clinic. Oh, nice. Um, so we're, um, we're piloting that now with, um, with uh, oncology pharmacists and integrative medicine uh, doctor. So, mm -hmm. you know, we're, we're doing innovative stuff. Um, mm -hmm. And we really want to make this all the standard of care. And so that's really our, our end game. <laughs> okay. Well, let me ask you this too. Given the advent of telemedicine in this time of COVID, now say somebody lives very remotely, maybe has to drive an hour to a treatment center. Does the, I guess, more popular uh, use or more frequent use of telemedicine, does that make some of these services more available to people who are maybe a little bit more remote. They can't, they don't live in a big town. They can't just, you know, go someplace in 20 minutes and have a consult with a dietitian. Is, I mean, is that feasible? Could somebody say from Montana request a consult with you via telemedicine? Well, first I think telemedicine is fabulous for this purpose, for mm -hmm. nutrition, Mm -hmm. um, all my work in the survivorship clinic is now telehealth and it's my kitchen to your kitchen and we really do great work. It's much more effective than being in a consult room in the hospital, honestly. So nutrition counseling is very suited to telehealth. So it is effective. Um, in terms of, um, I know that there are, um, restrictions as to how, how far your telehealth net can go. Uh, okay. you know, it's like you know, outside, wise across and state lines. Yeah. Got it. Okay. So I know there's that restriction, but, um, the potential is there and, and yes, you know, there could be tremendous amount of outreach, you know, getting this level of expertise from mm -hmm. these academic centers out into sure. you know, remote communities. There's, um, it's so needed and the technology is there. So we can make that happen. And again, nutrition lends itself to it. And an evaluation of supplements lends itself to that. Other disciplines, not so much. Um, sure. You know, like physical therapy is a little difficult yeah. to do that way. <laughs> yes. uh, yeah. So, um, but nutrition and supplement evaluation, very suited to it. 
Okay, that's very interesting because I guess even if somebody did live remote, there's probably at least one big city in their state. So they could potentially search out, you know, a cancer center maybe that's in a bigger city that might have a few more resources and connect with a dietitian that way. So that's something yes. that people could consider. Yes. Okay, because we the whole goal of, of breastcancer.org and our podcast is we really like to give people action items. So I guess that would be if somebody is a breast cancer survivor looking to improve nutrition, that may be an avenue that they could do it if they don't feel like they have anything close to them. Yes, so you can contact um, the academic medical centers and ask for a uh, board-certified oncology dietitian. And that's a way to identify, uh, to get to the uh, source. Okay, perfect. Now to wrap up, I don't, I don't know if you have any more recommendations, but if you did, say for women being treated for breast cancer, uh, what would your advice to them be about supplement use? Be judicious. <laughs> um, more is not better. Um, but take a good look at how you're eating first. And think about um, uh, food is visual, right? So I often say, and I know this sounds simplistic, but it's very effective. I say, think of the rainbow colors, um, right? Um, purple, blue, green, red, yellow, orange, white. Think of those colors. Get the, have something like that uh, at every meal. Then in, the, in your week, capture those colors. And um, they, it can be um, frozen, it could be canned, it does not have to be fresh, does not have to be organic, right? Mm -hmm. So it's very economical. It's a very simple way of looking at really eating in a nutrient-dense uh, diet. And the power is in the colors. Doesn't matter if it's a fruit or a vegetable, what matters is the color. And this is food as medicine. The mm -hmm. healing power are in the colors that Mother Nature gives to us. And it's a very simple way to greatly increase the nutrient density of your eating and to access all the powerful phytonutrients, probiotics, fiber, anti-inflammatory agents that Mother Nature has packaged for us in these delicious foods. So um, I always emphasize that, and that comes before using supplements. Okay. And then if we identify gaps in your eating or there are identified deficiencies, you know, through blood tests, then we can target supplements to correct those deficiencies. Okay. I like it. Eat a rainbow. <laughs> it's a, my most effective teaching tool. <laughs> I like that. It's easy. It's simple to remember. Mara, thank you so much. This has been really informative. And I think you gave our listeners a lot of great points on what to think about when they're eating and also when they're using supplements. So thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the breastcancer.org podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. To share your thoughts about this or any episode, email us at podcast at breastcancer.org or leave feedback on the podcast episode landing page on our website. And remember, you can find a lot more information about breast cancer at breastcancer.org. And you can connect with thousands of people affected by breast cancer by joining our online community.